welcome to the People, Planet, Profit podcast. I'm Hayley Jarrick, CEO of the Supply Chain Sustainability School. This podcast was recorded as part of an event and video series developed by one of the school's working groups. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Building Bites, an event series with experts in sustainable construction brought to you by the Supply Chain Sustainability School's construction working group. I'm Hayley Jarrick, CEO of the Supply Chain Sustainability School, and today I'm joined by Jeremy Mansfield who's the National Sustainability Manager for Operations at Lendlease Australia. Jeremy's going to be talking to us about his career in construction, interest in sustainability, and the legacy he hopes to leave when he retires. Welcome, Jeremy. I hope to do that. Uh, yes, retire at some time. Well, thank you, Hayley. Thank you for the introduction, and great to be with you today. Okay, well, let's get jump straight into it. So take me through your career. How did you get started in the construction industry? Yeah, thank you. Um, I got started actually straight out of school. Uh, actually, before that, I did uh, some work experience in year uh, year twelve on the uh, New Parliament House project. Um, I was very lucky to be involved with the Concrete Holdings Joint Venture Team and get some work experience. And that led me to decide that after year twelve, I'd go and work for a year and uh, manage to get a job on that same project. So. Straight out of school, I was a site clerk for uh, a little company or an engineering company called P Ward Civil Engineering, who uh, worked on the new Parliament House project. And I was there uh, for the period of its completion and seeing the opening and uh, seeing the completion of one of Australia's most iconic buildings. Um, so that was my first foray into construction. And then I decided I would want I wanted to go and um, get a degree in, in construction management and uh, went and undertook my degree um, straight through in three years at the University of South Australia, or when I started, it was the old South Australian Institute of Technology um, for the construction management degree. Um, well, that does sound fun, and I bet you you're one of those blokes that drives past everything you've built and tells everyone that what you did on that project too. My dad used to do that to me all the time. I may have had that, and I'm lucky enough to have been involved with many of those iconic type projects, so I will mention some of those along the way. But that was the first start of my career in terms of um, undertaking that degree, so I was lucky enough to get some experience, go to university, having had that practical kind of um, exposure of construction activity on a, on a large and grand scale of 2,000 people working on a ridiculous amount of uh, work fronts at the same time trying to get to an end date, um, so very much appreciative of the the challenge of scale and and uh, redesign work and all the other things that comes with a large-scale project. Um, so that was my first foray in both construction, but also my first start of seeing some of the good things in sustainability, like green roofs, and that was one of the most, you know, iconic examples of that very early days and how they were using that thermal uh, roof, that roof area to really help manage some of the thermal load of that, that building. But also the bad things in terms of the amount of redesign work and other things happening because building was going such fast pace that Mitchell Googler Thorpe and the design teams were struggling to keep up. And so some of the choices and things that happened during that project and the wastage um, is something you kind of can't not see in terms of the things that happened during those big scale projects. So as I said, that, that exposed me to some of the, the good and the bad in terms of, you know, our, our impact as a, as an industry. Um, so, yeah, so that was the start of my career and I was lucky then to go on to, in the early parts of my career with, uh, with Fletcher Construction at the time, to do a range of projects from apartments to uh, defence projects, 
uh, both um, uh, offices and uh, libraries and audiovisual centres and retail and nursing homes and other types of things before I was lucky enough that Civil and Civica uh, found me in Canberra and brought me up to uh, Brisbane to undertake a, a range of works. And I've been with the company ever since and it's changed names a few times, but that's essentially where I've been for the last 25 years of my 32-year careers in, in construction. Um, well, you've made one mistake there, and I'm going to call you on it because so many people in our industry do this, and that's to say that you were lucky. It wasn't luck that did it. It was blood, sweat, tears, and perseverance that did it. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to call you on it because so many people that I speak to, especially in the sustainability game, really undermine their own personal achievements as luck or, you know, as, as a, it was something that happened to them as opposed to, you know, you've spent a lot of time doing a lot of hard work that's earned you everything that you're achieving today and where you've gotten to. So I'm going to call you on it, sir. Um, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, yes. Um, how, how did that turn into sustainability then? So, look, before I get to that, I guess um, I was also uh, – I'm trying not to use luck um, – also um, privileged to work on a range of really complex projects. So whether that's trying to build a cinema complex in between a car park and an operating shopping centre in a location that has cyclones that happen – the day that you're trying to hand over a PC, which is, you know, pretty interesting, um, to building an F111 paint shop that's never been done before, that's beyond the building codes in terms of, a, you know, a spray paint booth to um, those kind of really complex projects that mean you, you have to spend a lot of time understanding first principles of design response to functional needs and all those kinds of things. So I guess before I got into the game of sustainability, I was also being very exposed to you've got lots of problems to solve. It's not been done before. You can't copy it from another project. You're actually going to have to determine, you know, how you actually put this together that actually serves the right functional need, that optimises it, that doesn't build a behemoth that becomes a, you know, problem child in terms of its operation. So so that some of those were kind of um, my kind of foray into, you know, complexity. And then I guess, you know, I started to about 20,000, 2004, was when 30 the bond kind of came around uh, in terms of the most you know iconic green building before green star really happened in a, in a lot of ways and it obviously kind of reinforced you know what's possible if we really push ourselves from chilled beam technology and other initiatives that that project really um, championed um, that really started my interest in terms of saying well what are we really doing and um, you know I did my first green star course in 2006 back then starting to get, okay, well, what are the frameworks we're trying to use to benchmark good practice? And um, and then, you know, Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth in 2007. And at that time, between 2004 and seven, I was delivering the Millennium Arts Project, the Gallery of Modern Art, the State Library Extension, and my role was the site infrastructure works, kind of connecting all of that together and also providing, you know, public space amenity to a, a really important urban precinct in, in Brisbane. Uh, and really providing a massive legacy for people and, yes, to showcase to your families when you go walking to see the museum. So that early project area of having to then report what we were doing on that project really led to me going, well, this is a great opportunity for me to transition from being the uh, design manager, project manager uh, that, I, and that I had been as well as in the construction management game to something that's keeping us honest around what our commitments are and how we can deliver better outcomes on our future projects. So I 
kind of at that time wrote my own role description and said, I want to do this as a job. Um, I think there was a little bit of a, you want, you, you don't want to be a project manager? I'm like, no, I want to be a sustainability manager. I want to help drive the, the thrive in our business and, and lead us in terms of what we're doing in that, but also support and guide other projects to do the right thing and actually really push best practice. And that's kind of what I guess I, I was supported to make happen. Um, it wasn't by luck. It was by making a stand, I guess. Um, and then I had some great projects to be a part of, including the the QE2 um, Supreme and District Courts project, which just had such a galvanising moment of good public building sustainability practice. Um, you know, it was glass, steel and uh, concrete and a real strong palette of that with strong daylight and amenities and just uh, eliminating all the kind of maintenance issues around painted elements, et cetera, and there was a real attention to detail on that project that, you know, I think it's still the best public building in Australia in terms of being a long-lasting asset that really demonstrates, you know, what can provide a, a real showcase for that particular sector in terms of the, the justice sector. And this is coming from the bloke who built Parliament House, right? Like the best public yeah. building is still like... <laughs> yeah, well, yeah I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe because we were such so detailed around what we needed to do right that I felt confident that that project, and had it not been for the floods, probably would have got its Green Star Building certification. But, you know, unfortunately the timing of that was such that additional opportunities to actually achieve its um, its recognition, third party and other opportunities that were going to connect that building to other things wasn't possible because of the need to support other things. And that was probably also the transition for me in that, resilient space so that's the other thing that happened around that time and you know 2010 2011 between the black Death saturday bushfires and the queensland floods and being involved with the not-for-profit in green cross australia and trying to promote what are the things that we can do to make better decisions around resilience about built environment that supports um local resilient communities and empower them to be um building to last rather than repairing you know the things that are minimum type approach um, so that kind of started my journey in that space. So both sustainability and resilience and looking at the how do we operate in a way that helps to mitigate the, the impacts of climate change as well as respond to and improve and ensure that we're actually trying to, you know, prevent the damage that can, you know, undo all the good work we've done in the built environment. So that's sort of quite of galvanised a lot of my thinking across both the sustainability and resilience space in those areas. Um, into the early 20, 2011s, 2012s, and then I spent the next few years supporting, supporting the Sunshine Coast University Hospital and a lot of the regional projects that we were delivering at the time. And that really then took that to the next level in terms of scale. Um, one, I had uh, a great resource on that project and supporting and mentoring them to support the project team and then um, uh, also then really delivering some you know great best practice on that project that took a commitment or an obligation of a four-star project to achieving a six-star, you know, world leadership type outcome that really showed what's possible if you set your mind to it and not see it as being a, you know, a difficult to achieve if, if the team are really, um, you know, motivated to, um, you know, make it make a difference in terms of that kind of best practice approach to that project. So, um, so yeah, so that project was a galvanising moment as well as having at this, around that time, having quite a lot of input with the Green Building Council on their Green Star design and as-built tools, 
their communities tools back in 2012 and the, and the resilience, um, expert reference panel that I'm still involved with, with the Green Building Council today on the next iteration of those, those tools. Um, there's a few things from that kind of era into the 20, the 2018 kind of 2020s, I guess. Um, and then, you know, I've been very lucky, very lucky. Um, I've been around at the right time to, uh, be involved with our 25 King mass engineered timber building. I'm really seeing that, um, decarbonisation in construction is really coming into its own, that we're managing our, our projects in, in all sense of, um, sustainability in a, really taking it to the next level, I guess, in terms of just how do we make sure that we're doing everything we can to, um, deliver buildings that are world class and, and, um, really, uh, you know, providing our customers the, the best outcomes we can in terms of, um, I guess their, you know, sustainability credentials in all of those terms. Well, there's a lot there. I mean, you definitely took me back down memory lane as well. Like I remember doing a lot of those early sort of Green Star and GBCA conferences where everyone was still trying to find their way into how to navigate it, how to get to the best of the stars in the system. And um, the Harden Up tool uh, is probably one of the most, you know, used and and easily accessible tools for, um, especially up in Queensland, around actually sort of saying, you know, build it back different, build it back better, build it back green. You know, um, and here's a whole bunch of reasons how you can, the ways to do that and the way that that project specifically just, you know, navigated, um, the insurance issues with some of the building code issues with the, how do you get it? You know, if you've cleaned out your house with a flood, let's not build the backsalt floods again. You know, if you've been wiped yeah. out by a bushfire, let's not build the back. So it's just as prone to the next bushfire that comes through, but it's resilient for it. Um, and then really progressing that journey through to now, where I think this is massively like you said, like the decade for action. Um, and so many people are focused on carbon uh, and getting all of those, those impacts. I think the life cycle impact is there, but the embodied impact is definitely something that's coming into the the forefront of a lot of people's conversations yeah um, and, and so then yeah and i probably glossed over that in terms of 2020 was when we produced the low embodied carbon um report on what are the barriers for materials and low embodied carbon materials adoption um that was a precursor along with the wwf's report um, to really galvanise the movement of the Materials Embodied Carbon Leaders Alliance uh, and bringing that together with, you know, 140-plus stakeholders now. So to see that come to life in terms of uh, probably a thought, thought bubble that, um, you know, Ann Austin and I and a few others were kind of contemplating around a carbon club and what could that look like to, you know, what Meckler is today. I think it kind of highlights that collaboration will be key, uh, particularly bringing on board our supply chain, but also the clients to help supply the, the, the signals to market that this matters and that, you know, everyone needs to step on, up and respond to that. I, th- I think we're starting to see both sides of the, the push and pull happening in that space that um, was definitely not there a while ago that kind of meant really hard yards instead of we were doing things in absence of clear signals from market to, to make things happen. Um, uh, yeah, definitely. I think we'll, we've kind of merged into my next question is going to be what's the main topic area that you're working on at the moment? I know that we're doing a lot of work with embodied carbon um, together at the moment, but let's focus on, except for embodied carbon, what are some other of the big topic areas that are sort of, um, that you're spending a lot of time on these days or that you're planning for because you know it's coming up? 
Well, certainly uh, the broader Mission Zero roadmap that that uh, we've got, um, really trying to achieve our scope one, two, and three, absolute zero carbon by 2040, no offsets, is driving a, a you know a very strong change in terms of what is it going to take to do that across the various business lines, um, and it really helps to invoke um, you know a, a set of uh, Questions that the business need to start to think around. Um, what are we doing now? Um, how far advanced are we? What's stopping us being able to do more? Um, and, and how can we unlock those, those opportunities? Uh, or, um, you know, are there alternative ways to address those things? So obviously one of those key areas has been, um, focused in the fossil fuel free construction work that we've done some research on that Abby Haywood led the research on with the University of Queensland. It really delved deeply into the challenge of our construction equipment and machinery and actually uncovering that we're actually a really hard to abate sector because whilst there's a lot happening in the electric vehicle space, the extent to which that's happening in the plant and equipment uh, area is uh, a long way behind that. Uh, we're certainly seeing some equipment already transitioning, particularly your likes of your, your electric cranes and the like, but quite a lot of the other equipment are going to take us decades to um, uh, remove that uh, umbilical cord of fossil fuel free being, you know, the the usage of those particular equipment that have all been um, those types of um, uh, driven equipment for the combustion engine within those, you know, excavators and everything else. So that's going to take an enormous amount of momentum to make happen because at the moment with a, in terms of signals to market there isn't anything there that's really an investment driver unlike other parts of the, or other sectors that have highlighted that they're a hard debate sector and you know they're supporting transport for example but construction is uh, not so sexy and not so um, directly given the recognition of how much that they are a user of uh, fossil fuels and uh, so we need, you know, quite a lot of focus in that area. Um, so that's kind of one area. Uh, obviously, the, the the broader decarbonisation spaces is that that all comes into the mission zero aspect. Um, other things that respond to the task force for climate related disclosure around managing climate risk. Again, both picking up uh, mitigation and climate and transitional risk and carbon, but then also all the physical risks that we need to manage and and appropriately. Um, have plans in place to to look at those um, those particular issues and projects. There's some aspects. I, I think um, just the responsible product aspect of supply chain and just the the shift in change of how you know that is taking place. I mean, the momentum on companies taking on board environmental product declarations or at least understanding that having some stewardship of uh, what how they are managing their products. Really means that they, uh, you know, they're getting a lot more involved of understanding. Well, if I'm going to offer up a carbon neutral product, I need to be doing everything I can before I then go and buy a bunch of offsets because I need to have a credible evidence of I've done everything I can of all the things that I can do to eliminate emissions during the manufacture and production piece. And I'm taking account for that and, and, and only being left with the things that I can't yet do. Um, so that's a big journey for many organisations to take and, and quite a few are taking that journey now and others are starting to 
trick to that, whether that's because they've heard of Meckler or because they know suppliers are, you know, trying to promote that through, you know, the recognition of non-price criteria that, you know, certainly being identified as a barrier problem in terms of adoption and certainly been raised in forums with clients like the Transport for New South Wales and their discussion on sustainable procurement. So I think this is all kind of coming together around the whole agenda on sustainability on on projects and how that actually happens through the various processes and, you know, a recognition that unless you're actually providing the right signals of it through the whole process, process you're not going to get the right outcome. Um, so I think I think that's really shifting and it's shifting much faster than I thought it would because, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a it's got a long tail in terms of you know, recognising the kinds of issues we're trying to deal with and how that ends up being on a <laughs> delivered on a project. Um, so there's some things and I know I'm talking a lot, so I might stop there. <laughs> you usually do. That's okay. <laughs> well, I'm gonna. I'm going to wrap you up by saying you've, you've, you've taken us through your career, we've talked about sustainability, we've talked about some of the key projects, but then let's round that out with uh, how you want your legacy um, to be heard of, you know, when you retire. Um, and, a, you know, I think it's like a, I joke that it's the buildings you drive past and tell everybody what you did on them, but, I mean, they're incredibly um, proud moments to be able to say that or to be able to explain that it was going to go down this path and, you know, this little thing changed and now we have this amazing asset because of, like, uh, you know, some small thing that we did. Um, the legacy question is is usually massive, right? A lot of people work in space because uh, it's not about them. It's what they're trying to leave for, you know, the next generation and the two or three after that. Um, so what do you hope to leave as your legacy when you retire? Not mm. anytime soon. <laughs> well, I guess it's a recognition that I feel like the – the built environment plays such a critical role in, in our society and our livelihood and our communities. And, and for me, uh, being able to see those buildings and point them out to my, you know, younger generations um, is kind of a really a testament to, well, this matters because that's what they're there for. They're actually there to be a part of your, you know, the role of in terms of uh, your livelihood, your work life, um, enjoyment and if they're not there and they've uh, you know uh, not survived a disaster or you know crumbled because they've not been built in a in a well considered way then that kind of you know really concerns me so I think the the longevity of those assets as well as their ability to be sustained in a way that limits its impact uh, to future generations in terms of its operational piece and not having to be rebuilt <laughs> I think they're they're you know, parts of that um, critical role I think our built environment needs to play that, you know, we need to consider that um, really carefully. And I guess for me, though, the other part that I'm trying to leave and things that I'm doing in the kind of university space and supporting and funding awards is primarily to um, support the next generation and the positive impact that they can play because I only have a short time left in terms of my career. I've probably got another decade maybe left in me. Um, and so I'm trying to make sure that I'm doing everything I can to give a leg up to those that um, really will be the next leaders in the industry in the next um, next 20 years, 30 years, because um, we need that kind of uh, group to really come forward and provide an even greater positive impact uh, on the built environment to 
both support sustainability and resilience and the way in which the built environment you know, leaves that lasting legacy. So that's kind of my my thoughts on that. That's great. I love that ambition. And I love that, you know, I, I can totally see you sort of sitting back in retirement and watching a few people come through that, you know, you'd seen them early in their careers and watch them grow and just be really proud. Um, and not in a, you know, in a weird egotistical way, but just like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. Like it's, it's really good to see when you try so hard at something that it plays out. Um, and then you can sit back and relax and hand it over to the next group. Um, to push it further than even where you took it and just be totally amazed and, and honoured by what they've done. So thank you for chatting with me today, Jeremy, and for sharing your journey so far. Oh, you're welcome, Hayley, and uh, always up for a chat and good to um, to share our stories because I think that's the only way we kind of get a sense of opportunities for others to kind of follow in those footsteps. So thank you. Um, and thanks for everybody for listening. Until our next episode, bye. Bye.